Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Colin Baker, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the macroscopic task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. I know they get worse by the by the month, don't they? My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally macro four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who has seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. There's also our semi-novice fan. One who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wonderful and glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Hi. And we are in her kitchen tonight. Thank you, Jenny, for hosting us because, yes. Ain't no thing. It's a wonderful <laughs> thing. And finally, as a special treat, we have another expert panelist who makes my credentials look minuscule. But who knows at least as much about crabs as I do? Trey Crote, oh, hello, gosh. Trey. Uh, Hi. Yes, joking, joking. Nobody knows more about crabs than I do. I'd like to thank Jenny for letting a strange man into her kitchen for me to do this. You know, yes. Really Always welcome. Always welcome. Well, it's not the first time. Uh-huh. No, 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 no. Crabs, not welcome, but we'll talk about that. This yeah. is true on whether they're crabs at all. Before we get to talking about the book, please remember our new Patreon page, available at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. We know, we know, you keep telling us, and we keep not listening. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy. Rick Taylor and Toby Benkelsdorf. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Thank you. Toby. Yes. You may have been wondering where all these jokes about Macrochira Camp Fury are suddenly coming from. And it's because this time we're discussing Ian Stewart Black's novelization of his own script for The Macro Terror. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who the Macro Terror, adapted by Ian Stewart Black from the script that aired from 31167 to 4167, published by Target Books in July 1987. As of this recording in June of 2018, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 139 pages. And a fast-moving 139 pages they are, too. I recently had to take a megabus to St. Louis, which is roughly a five-hour trip, and I do mean roughly, it is megabus. And I started this one halfway there and finished it well before we arrived. Whether that's a good thing or not, we need to discuss. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. We also need a reminder of who Ian Stewart Black is, since he was the writer. We concentrated on for our 
poorly named and possibly politically incorrect Black History Month in February. And coincidentally, it's Juneteenth this week. Oh, it yeah. is Juneteenth. Yeah. Will someone explain this to me on air? Because I, I, someone's been saying it's Juneteenth and I don't know what Juneteenth, Juneteenth is. Juneteenth marks, was it the, one of the regulations, I can't remember this Emancipation Proclamation or the actual um, constitutional amendment that ended slavery, but there were some slaves in Texas who weren't aware of it oh, and because of communication. So... You know, and I think it marks the day they the last group finally became aware of their freedom. Oh. I could be wrong on this, um, but we're it's that's something four along those lines. White people with four computers at a kitchen table. We're gonna figure this out. Uh, <laughs> Wikipedia, thank you. Juneteenth, also known as Juneteenth Independence Day or Freedom Day, is an American holiday which I didn't fucking know about that know. commemorates the June nineteenth, eighteen sixty five announcement of the abolition of slavery in the U.S. state of Texas and more generally, the emancipation of enslaved African Americans throughout the former Confederacy of the Southern United States. Its name is a portmanteau of June and 19th, the date of its celebration. Juneteenth is recognized as a state holiday, or a special day of observance in 45 states. Is it in Illinois? Because I've literally never heard of it. No, I've never heard of it either. Well... I There's guess, a liberation theme. I don't know what's worse, co-opting Ian Stewart Black to celebrate Juneteenth or saying that we're doing a book about crabs during Pride Month. <laughs> either way, either way, we're just skirting those really, really bad, bad areas. Yeah. There's anyway. the whole holiday camp aspect of it as well. Uh, there is that. Oh, yeah. Well, and <laughs> emphasis on the camp, yeah. Mm-hmm. Vacation all I ever wanted. <laughs> yes. Ian Stewart Black... For those who may not have remembered, I uh, wrote back-to-back scripts of The Savages and The War Machines, two stories that were slightly better than this one. This is also his last script for the show, because believe it or not. So let's go back over his bio just one more time, since we're never going to do it again. Ian Stuart Black was born in 1915, started a long career as a novelist, you wouldn't know it from this book. Playwright, screenwriter, actor in college, served in World War II, was demobbed, wrote extensively for British television, including for shows like The Invisible Man, The Saint. He co-created Danger Man, which we know in this country as Secret Agent, which was the precursor to an even better show, The Prisoner. As he was a regular viewer of Doctor Who, Black inquired about writing for the show to impress his kids, which I guess did. One of those kids is the actress Isabel Black, who not only appeared in Danger Man and the Avengers, but was almost cast in Doctor Who at one point, and he died in 1997, so we can unload on him as much as we want to. I always look that up, and then I write dead in whatever year it was, but D-E-D. <laughs> I always feel bad about it, though, because I'm you like, shouldn't. well, just because he's dead doesn't mean I can make fun of him, but then I'm like, your writing is bad in this book, so I can't make fun yes. of you. It has its um, moments, this is true. Oh, All right. I have them here. <laughs> All good. Well, let me get the stuff about the story about, uh, yeah, let me get the historical stuff about the story out of the way first, and then we can start Please. with our axes. Um, the idea came from the producers who wanted a story set in a holiday camp with monsters living under the earth, according to Shannon Sullivan's wonderful site. The holiday camp was never really a thing here in the United States. I mean, unless you were religious. Unless you were religious. Because it reminded me, because I grew up Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, oh, and we had right. Lutheran family camp, and oh, it was yeah. exactly like that. That's true. So, you know, you'd go, and it was like Delta and the Bannerman, which is... I think the only time doc- we've seen it. But, other time it does. But yeah. yeah, like where the whole family would be there and would have little cabins and there would be little gongs. And oh, and yeah. so... This is like in Dirty Dancing, right? 
like where oh. they go to the camp yeah. and it's kind like of activities yeah. and yes. dancing you yes. put on a play at the end. Oh, yes. 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 Yeah. Very foreign idea to me. My family was not into doing anything with anybody else. So. But I'm completely wrong. It was something here in the States, but not to the extent it was in Britain. Well, not like, because you had like companies in Britain that would market them and it was like, oh, we're going to do like, it was like a whole branding sort of thing. I think the nearest would be like when you go to like a some of the Disney stuff or these yeah. planned vacations or Jellystone campgrounds. And that's it. That. Oh, okay. That's it. Yeah, but it, yeah, it's, it was much more widespread and for longer because if we adults in the, in the States go camping, we tend to like to be left alone because we're too afraid of, you know, Jason coming out of the woods. <laughs> um, but they have them from the late 19th century onwards. And there was a big thing even. Uh, at one point, they used them to garrison soldiers during World War II. And prisoners during World War One, So, yeah, that's what you do. By the 80s, they'd become more of a rarity. But, of course, the 1987 story, Delta and the Bannerman, would have one set in the 50s. That's a fun story. We will get there eventually. In fact, I kind of wish we were there now. Anyway, Black's creatures were originally spiders. But script editor Jerry Davis was worried that people would remember the Zarbi from a few years prior, <laughs> like he ever had to worry. High aspirations there. Yeah, very high <laughs> aspirations, exactly. So he instead made them into giant versions of the Japanese spider crab, which is known as Macrochira campieri, or Macra for short. Nothing short about the Macra prop, though. The one prop. That they built for this story. The finished crab, which looks very little like the crab on the cover, um, was almost 10 feet tall and had to be mounted on the back of a van. <laughs> so it doesn't appear on screen very often, which is a very good thing. Does the van have candy on it? And it would have to. Very Stephen King. Uh, yeah. It cover. It's got the deadlights and the like open. Yeah. Well, that would be a better monster, I think. But it's, what, it's, what's fun is that... Um, We've got the, copy. we've got the um, the surviving sensor clips are pretty much some of the macro scenes yes. like they're menacing Polly and you can see those um, so because these are missing episodes but the Australian censors took out the scary bits <laughs> and so you see <laughs> a few glimpses of you know these this crab creature just kind of wobbling about and Anna Quill's trying to like you know be scared with her foot caught in that and it's it's it's, 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 it's <clears throat> yeah yeah needless to say when the macro returned in 2007's gridlock spoiler alert they return in 2007's gridlock they were done in stunning cgi or at least as stunning as you could get in 2007 on a tv budget but it's kind of exciting when they come back mm. but they're not like this no few other noteworthy things the producers finally decided during the filming of this story that Ben and Polly should be let go. So they started looking into ending their contracts, getting someone new, and this was the first story to go out with Troughton's new opening sequence, but since the story doesn't exist except from those Australian clips, there's that. Trey, would you be willing to read us the blurb on the back cover, please, since you are our guest this time? In the far future, a group of humans is living an idyllic existence on a distant planet. Their colony is run like a gigantic holiday camp, and nothing seems to trouble their carefree existence. When one of them claims that the colony is being invaded by hideous monsters, no one takes them seriously, but the doctor's suspicions are immediately aroused. 
What is the terrible menace that lurks at the heart of this apparent paradise? Why are the colonists unaware of the danger that lies before their very eyes? And what is the macro terror? And why is the doctor immediately aroused? That's what I wanted to know. Linked with Patrick Troughton, those are unfortunate words. Mm. <laughs> anyway. Oh boy. So, first impressions. Jenny, I'm going to defer to you since you are a novice fan, and, uh, yeah. Why did you, why did you do that? Um, Just tell us how much you hate it. (laughs) Oh, no. Just tell us what you were expecting and how this completely fell outside of your expectations. Well, I want to find the place where, and this is, I, I hadn't slept i had some insomnia and i was reading this and i was trying to find a good analogy and i couldn't find it but i said that the the pros of this it's not bad on like a sentence level it's just that sort of it has the finesse or storytelling capability of a drunk panda trying to make a grilled cheese sandwich (laughs) that's what i wrote down i don't really know what that means but that's where I was, was at. But I think that's just, our tagline for this episode. It's, then. At the end, I was like, this is just really a mess. Like, it's worse than the museum one. And I can't remember what that one was the called. The space museum. That I really yeah. disliked that. Oh my god. It was so boring. So you think but this prose is worse than Glenn Jones? This is, yeah. This is worse. Because wow. it's just, there's no, uh, what do you call it? Tension. There's no tension. Like, there's no way in the universe that I'm going to be afraid of like large apparently huge crabs that move the speed of a slug i'm quoting here but yet that you somehow can't see ever i'm like i don't know how the crabs are so massive that you can't see them like i I just don't know yeah and they never like what do they do that's fearsome they never more than like you know give someone's leg a playful tug there's no threat of them eating anybody. There's no threat of like their eggs being everywhere. Right. There's no threat of them causing an earthquake from the ground. There, there is literally no threat that I've seen from these things. I just couldn't be afraid of them. So yeah. like, why, yeah. why am I, I fearing these? Other than them apparently being very disgusting, which I'm like, that's kind of a sad message for this book to convey. That just because something looks gross, you should fear it and think it's bad. Mm-hmm. And like, I had a deep problem speaking of, we're talking about Juneteenth and in slavery things. And this probably isn't a good connection but i was like how do we know they call these things the parasite i'm like but they were here first yes and i was gonna bring that up yeah. uh-huh. the humans are the parasite how do we know that the macro aren't like nice and they're just trying to you know maybe the, the humans were doing something not cool to them or hurting themselves and they're like well we'll just gas the humans and it'll be kind of like a benign matrix scenario like what if they're doing this for the human's own good and then the doctor comes in and it's like we've restored your planet to you and the humans are like thanks bro and it's like <laughs> no you just you just killed the the, the natives of this planet the poor macro who have to live underground okay. also there's like no reason for why they want to be on top of the ground like why wouldn't they just live in the ground why if they right. if the gas is under there and they can't breathe in the air why aren't they like well i guess humans are up there and we're down and why here. do they need humans to mine the gas yeah i too i was like if they're smart enough to set up like this ruse <laughs> i mean maybe it's just a, a, a thumb issue i don't know but... <laughs> and i think this kind of stems from the remit that insert black was given so like there's the story problems which are numerous mm-hmm. But again, it's make. He was assigned this from Jerry Davis, who wrote Celestial Toy Maker and other things. Wow. And I guess I love Patrick Troughton, but I think the Second Doctor's era is probably the weakest of the entire series in oh, terms of writing. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the performance of Patrick Troughton and then Fraser Hines and some of the other companions that really save it because yeah. it's 
the, the writing is probably at its worst in the second Doctor era. And that's, that's my judgment, but... No, I would bad. agree. Um, well, yeah, I, I can feel it. Um, but also, it just screams, like, this is a script. There's some, mm-hmm. there's some words that are just really weird, that it's like, they took... I don't, where was it? About, like, taking the... Uh, they put the you're like they put the gas masks or took them from their pocket and I'm like how does a gas mask fit in a pocket or like <laughs> there was something somewhere that it was like oh some something fell over I'm like well what the fuck was it like <laughs> like was it a rock was it a stick like there's things here that I just wholesale have no idea what they look like like a lot of the times they're like oh there's these unfinished buildings I'm like why are they unfinished like what what no. is this area that we're in we get a little bit of description of it in the beginning but it's so like blocking language yeah. that I'm like, oh, well, I see how this probably was a script at one point. Or parts of it were this person is yeah. used to writing scripts, but right. now as prose, it really doesn't carry. And interesting you should bring up the unfinished buildings because that suggests that the colony got interrupted in its building because of what happened with the macro, but oh. that is never oh, so brought up in the that story. Connection. Yeah, that it's could never be, there. That would have been smart. There, there, are not, there are lots of little set pieces that could have been turned into a better story here, and I think that's what we're, we're latching onto for sure. And I'm glad we're latching onto it so quickly. I mean, I think for the television series, because I rewatched the telesnap reconstructions of this before he came and kind of compared oh, it to the book. Great, man. And there are so many little character moments and comedy moments. I think they figured out Patrick Troughton's a very funny actor. So all the bit with him getting the makeover that he doesn't want. Or then the, the whole incident with like Jamie and the cheerleaders and the Highland Flame. Like these are just played for comedy, which again, if you're trying to create this terror, why is there all this hilarity? Yeah. And it just doesn't work from what we see of it or what we hear of it. Maybe it did with the visuals, but I, from what I've seen in the visuals, no. Oh, no. And it's, it's so, so all the time that would have been spent addressing, I think, those are really good story issues, they didn't bother. I think they just, it comes across as, well, let's just do something funny and no one's going to watch this again. It's and, hollow. Yeah. <clears throat> it's very much just like this framework that has no filling. It's, yeah. Hmm, interesting. Well, and okay. it, really, it really makes me sad because... I wanted to like this, and I loved the book as a little kid when I read it because yeah. I was thinking, "Oh, it's giant crabs!" and the whole idea of you know the mind control. You know, it just seemed like an invention. It was one that I really, really wanted back, and I and just kind of when I got the audio book of um, the reading of it like two summers ago or mm-hmm. summer ago, it just started falling apart. And I like that it's trying to do the sort of it's kind of both Orwellian. And Huxleyan mm-hmm. at the same time because you've got like the the control knows best blah 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 but, you know which is very 1984 but then you've got the classical conditioning the appearance that everyone's having fun yes. and that which is very you know Brave New World so there's there should be something awesome happening here and it just doesn't ha- it doesn't materialize no. <laughs> no <pun intended. laughs> yeah yeah that really is the problem it's mostly framework and it's not yeah meaty it's like getting hold of a crab leg and you're like oh this is gonna taste so good and there's this minuscule bit of meat just hanging off the inside of it Mm -hmm. i'm sorry i was trying to bring it back to crabs but it didn't quite work (laughs) yeah i did like those little scenes of comedy though i thought it was funny especially because i met jamie in the other Mm -hmm. book the highlanders and Mm -hmm. i'm like oh here he is kind of doing this other stuff mercifully his accent is less heat up um they they turn down the scottish dial from 11 to like four (laughs) which is good um 
but those those bits of comedy I thought were actually kind of funny or all of these um, little rhymes. I was like, I want more rhymes, actually. I want yes. it to be more. I think that would have been really funny to do and how the doctor every time is just like, it doesn't get better. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm with well, you, doctor. <laughs> and if you listen to the surviving soundtrack, the audio for all those rhymes, it sounds like like a level from Super Mario. Yes. <laughs> It really does, you know. Happy to work, you know. And it just—it's about in that pitch. It's—it's—it's it's, it's so bizarre. I was imagining like creepy Oompa Loompa, like yeah, yeah, that level of just like yeah, yeah. And it doesn't translate to the page. Not really. It's not really too bad because yeah. it, it almost does. You're right. At first, I was like, oh yeah, mind control, and like oh yeah, like this gas. I do. Mm-hmm. I like the the soma. You know. I like that idea, but it just kind of... I have potential, but yeah. And and usually, like, when I'm reading these, I try to remember what it would feel like to be, like, a young teenager reading a novel like this and put myself in that mindset. But this, it's yes. still, like, yeah, like Trey was saying, it's like, no, I think mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot there. Like, if, no. if I was 14 and read this one time, maybe. And then if I read it a second time, I'd be like, no. Mm-hmm. But now, being older, it's... Yeah, my perspective is much... mm. I've only ever read it as an adult and because I didn't get this when I was a teenager because I'd already kind of gone off the show at that point. Mm. And it wasn't until the 90s that I went back to it and I was like, this is really odd. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I think my first encounter with this was um, the Colin Baker audiobook. Yeah. Yeah. Which has that lovely line about Ben Jamie. was in his Jamie was in his bunk tossing restlessly. Yeah, something it's like, like that. Oh, yeah, <clears throat> which makes it sound even more like. Yeah. There was oh, another good line about that. Tossing. It was <laughs> restlessly like, tossing. what's the doctor doing? Oh, he's playing his wee pipe or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay. Well, it's weird. Well, can, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Is the line because I, I can't remember if it's from the book or from the broadcast <clears throat> where the doctor walks in and he just says, "Well, this is gay." <laughs> <laughs> you are indeed a brave man to tackle someone as disturbed as me, Doc. It was nothing. Anyone would have done the same. Well, this is gay. <laughs> Follow the music. Oh, we regulate our day by music. Wait, that's not here. It's yeah, there's a line in the TV, the TV show. Like, this, this is, is gay. gay. <laughs> it's like you have no idea, honey. We don't use that word that way anymore. No. I'm going to have to track down that moment so I can drop the audio. Yeah, yeah so the stick it in there. That is hilarious. Because unfortunately the book, you know, is more like the more offensive term like ah, this book is so gay yes, yeah that's that really is. it's just really sad in its own way and i was like you looking forward to it i really was and it, oh god so let's talk about what specifically lets us down because it's not just plot it's stuff on the prose level even though some of black's prose is really quite good that first scene in the tardis which also isn't on screen by the way does some point of view character stuff which mm-hmm. is serviceable there yeah. um i guess for me what just doesn't work is the macro themselves mm-hmm. um i i mean one of the many things that doesn't work but but for me the macro is you know 
there's suspension of disbelief, but then it, this one really pulls it because mm-hmm. um, there's a bit like how there's a couple things. First of all, the whole thing reminds me of like Snuffleupagus from because <laughs> <laughs> Medoc, it's like they're here, they're here, they're here, and it's like you just missed them. And like, and as a child, that was always very frustrating. And so again, maybe for kids, this was really scary because one of those terrifying things as being a kid is not being believed by adults. And we actually see that is very terrifying when you look at like kids, you know, claiming abuse and things like that. The the fear of not being believed. Mm -hmm. And the story does tap into that. So that Medoc and the doctor are the only one to see that. And then Polly sees it and Ben sees it. And then Ben's like, nope, it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And that sort of denial of reality, that is psychologically terrifying for a child because it's something that children do deal with. And that reminded me of what what Snuffleupagus was all about. And It makes me wonder too if like, if the gas had some effect on people to make them actually not be able to see the macro. So like the doctor and Polly and Ben and Jamie haven't been on the planet and all but Ben kind of refused the gas when they were sleeping. So they weren't fully taken over by it. None of them were taken over by it. Mm -hmm. Ben a little bit. So I'm wondering, yeah, if there's like something supposed to be at play there that just doesn't read. My theory was that he's from the Navy. So maybe he's just got a, predilection for following orders yeah. and being in a higher that's, what I thought that's exactly what I thought yeah. that yeah. just was He's what he wanted to, to do it. yeah <laughs> but you're right about that I, I kind of forgot how in the end Medoc 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 calling him Medoc now he there's that bit where he's like oh you know he was glad people like believed him but he kind of got screwed over by his friends so he was going to be more careful from now on and I was like that's sad like actually this is a sad thing for this character to have taken away that he really got screwed over by people and then he's like yeah the world is sadder than when i was born <laughs> i was like oh it's, god yeah. it's they just left that there it's an interesting lesson for kids though yeah so yeah. If that's the theme of the story it's working but if it's trying to do the orwellian huxleyan thing that it seems to be trying to do it's failing on those accounts but the idea that it's about kids having parents who aren't believing them when something horrible is happening, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. I never, I didn't think about that angle, but I wish that it had capitalized on that more because I actually think that that would be more terrifying if it were really focused on. Yeah. Well, ten times more terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, so you get this great concept like that, and then my next note is, though, how do the macro fit into the rooms? <laughs> Because there's a bit where, like, they they go in (laughs) and, like, you know, there's, like, this control chamber and there's a bit where, like... It has a door. And it has a door with a porthole. Yeah. Exactly. And the telesnap of that, you see it and you just see this little, like, antennae kind of, like, past it. It's like, how did the macro... And, like, and it says the macro's operating the controls. I'm like, these are the same controls that the humans were operating Mm -hmm. with their fingers. And they got these big claws. And so then, you know, you... I'm going back and forth like there's a good cons- good conceptual level and then like all these immediate problems of the macro and you know I, and I just can't with them it's <laughs> just can't yeah it really does seem like it's one of those situations where they built the story around the monsters yes and then couldn't figure out how to literally build the set and that never works with Doctor Who no. And, you know, they, they um, skipping forward to with a little bit, but skipping forward, you've got like power of crawl, you've got creature from the pit, you've yeah. got, and again, some of the disaster stories are ones where the monster was the pitch and then the writer had to come up and build a story around it. That is true. 
They actually work better in Gridlock. Yeah. Yeah. They actually work better there. Though they have less to do. And that's the other thing. How did they get so intelligent? Were they always that intelligent? Were they always... The crabs? Yeah. Mm. I would be willing to accept that. Yeah. Um, so what I guess we're supposed to believe is that they at one point were chilling on this planet, but then the atmosphere changed and maybe they were struggling. And at mm-hmm. some point the humans came and they're like, great. It was we'll just Yeah. Or it could have been. Oh, that, see, that's okay. what this book should have done. Yeah. You know, brought up things like that. Like a reverse greenhouse effect. They tried to make a less hospitable planet suitable for humans and doing okay. so screwed up the native ecosystem. Well, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. And so I, I would assume that they were always smart. I Maybe, suppose yeah. that that was the intelligent species. But then, like, if the humans have gas masks, why don't the crabs have crab masks? <laughs> right. <laughs> crab bibs. Yeah, like, why? I, that would be cute. I, why, why don't they have little masks? But they'd be, like, they'd 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 be little. They're giant, they're giant claws. It's just, it, this is a possible like thumb problem. That's what this is. It'd be the size of tarps, though, because the point is 10 feet tall. Well, right, and I also had to look it up because at one point they said the crab was panting, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> crabs have gills, okay? Even the land roaming ones. I looked this up, the different mm. breathing apparatuses of, of crabs, and yes. found that, that that was the case. Um, but to this book's credit, maybe this is unintentional, at some point Jamie's talking about coal mining, and he's like, oh, it's like a coal mine. And I was like, would he know what that was? But I looked it up. And in the history of coal mining, it says in 1575, Sir George Bruce of Carnac of Colross, Scotland, opened the first coal mine to extract coal from a moat pit under the sea on the Firth of Forth. This could only be Scottish. He constructed an artificial loading island, blah, blah, blah. The technology was very advanced, apparently. Um, compared to this late medieval period that so it was in. Know. So, Jamie would have known about coal mines. Coal mines. And I was like, hey, they got something. Right. There you go. Much better, Yeah. there was, I'm trying to think of, other than just all the places where I was like, I don't, I can't buy the crabs. <laughs> um, <laughs> why are they called macra? Because of that. Japanese name for well, them, I know which why, is weird. I know because, why Ian Stewart Black calls a macro. Yeah. But how does everyone know that that's what the, they're the called? called right. Exactly. They seem to call themselves that. That's a good question. But why would they call themselves something that is from an English, well, Latin derivation? And it's not even from the grand part, it's from the large part. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like, I'm trying to think of other instances in Doctor Who where somebody just came up with a name. Oh, Silent Rams. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, we're just going to call them Silent Rams. Oh, wait, they should have been called Eocenes. Oh, Sea Devils, same thing. And then they and then the alien races adopt that name for themselves. It's like, no, this is what the humans are calling them. Maybe it's a TARDIS thing. Maybe the TARDIS Maybe it's a reclaiming of it. Maybe. Like oh, sea Devil Pride, you know, like we'll <laughs> see Sea Devils or you know, the ma- Macro Pride. That's you know, we bring it back That's to Gay Pride. You're, you're calling us Macro, we'll own that label, we'll own that slur. Before you, you know, can call it's... me the F word, I'm gonna use it for myself. Right, right. Oh, that's a thought. Except that we're, we're all really <laughs> I know. We're that's all where 
really trying to make this story make sense. Yes. We've had at least four really good ideas about how I to make mean, this better. Yes, we have. We should just rewrite this book. Let's, yeah. <laughs> oh, the well, I don't know, though. I've been thinking about this a lot and thinking that with the new novelizations coming out, which Trey is kind of wafting in my face here and showing me, and it's like, ah, oh, teasing me in that way that he has. <laughs> Those look um, really beautiful, actually. They yeah. are. Huh. They are, and they're based on the um, Chris Achilleos artwork, is that right? The, the original Doctor Who novelizations had artwork like that. And so they're doing them in the style of those. But those are novelizations of the new series. So are they good? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. They're Rose really is wonderful. Christmas Invasion slightly less so. I've been listening to Twice Upon a Time in the Car, and I've almost cried. I've been crying behind the wheel almost every time because it is just more beautifully written than the original episode. Maybe they finally realized that this is unacceptable. Well, and... they've also gotten people who are. Well, I mean, Stephen Moffat's is good. He's not known for being a prose writer, nor is Russell T. Davis. But That's with true. Jenny Colgan and um, Paul Cornell, you've got novelists who okay. are writers first. That's, and that's good. I wasn't aware of Jenny Colgan's work before. She's done a lot of the tie-in stuff. I don't know any of that's what any of her original stuff is. Whereas but... Paul Cornell has always had a way with prose. Right. That being said, Ian Stewart Black supposedly did. And that's the book we're reading. Yeah, this is where we are, listeners. We're talking about much better books because this one, oh God, especially, especially when you get to lines such as the one in chapter two, such as it wasn't often the doctor allowed himself and his companions to be separated. Yeah, right. Really? (laughs) Not often? For not often read every single fucking story because that's how they do. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's there's just a lot of little things. Like, actually, right in the beginning, there's a weird POV lapse, um, which is just really small, and I don't think many people would notice it, but all of my years of MFA have, uh-huh. like, hammered this into me, that the they've all been in the TARDIS. They're, they're talking about, let's see, whatever. They need to go find the pilot. And then they they had, a I think, a discussion about what it's called, command, command, commander or pilot. And then the next paragraph... The doctor was right. Okay. So the, and then the dark, powerful man was indeed called the pilot. And by his side was a man, clearly an assistant, whom he addressed as Barney. And I'm like, okay, so we had omniscient narration. We flew away from the doctor. We're describing this now. But then we get, let's see, carefree holiday was all around, blah, blah, blah. A holiday after a long, hard stint of work, the doctor guessed. And I'm like, wait a minute. So is the doctor standing there looking at the dancers, guessing what they are? But I thought he wasn't here, yeah. and it's omniscient. And then we get, again, you know, a first-rate band you've put together here. The pilot is talking Barney, nice rhythm, well-rehearsed, splendid. The other man, flushed with pleasure, I'm like, wait, that's Barney. You just said his name was Barney. Why aren't you calling him Barney? And now I have no idea where we are. <laughs> like, it's... Yeah, just loose. This didn't happen any other time, not that I could see, but at first I was like, what? These other characters, are. that was another reason. I, the characters are all so flat. And, you know, which one's the pilot? Which one's the controller? They've they've got all these you know, oh, yeah. names like Officia is the official. Quest, there's a Questa in oh. there. and then But then nice. you've got all these sort of Ola and then <laughs> Barney. And Barney. <laughs> Barney. 
Exactly. <laughs> Bizarre, Let's not mean, forget the Danger Gang, which yeah, I'm like, was oh, this yes. written by fucking seven-year-olds? Like, what are we going to call this gang that works in the Danger? The Danger, the danger Gang. gang. Exactly. Great. It's like the Bloodhound Gang what? or something. Even for Doctor Who nomenclature, this one just stands out with just how dumb it can be. But I know what you mean about the um, point of view and the omniscience, because uh, the first producer, Verity Lambert, always complained that the later Doctors seemed too omniscient at times and knew everything. This is where it starts because the second doctor suddenly just knows. Yeah. He knows. That's the new well, meme that's going on with the Twitch stream going on right now. He knows. But he he does. Well, and, and that's the sort of thing too. I mean, I obviously the way the story points out, Mirak is right. Mm-hmm. But if you you know, so let's say we had someone who was severely mentally ill and was suffering from delusions and escaped from an asylum mm-hmm. and a guy just kinda comes in and like releases him again, it's why does the doctor know no. to trust Medoc? You know, why doesn't he take, you know, we, we, and we end up trusting Medoc because the doctor trusts Medoc. Right. And that's the way the series works. But it always struck me as a little bit strange that he just believes his, you know, a version of events so quickly, mm-hmm. where in real life, you know, you'd want to maybe explore that a little bit more. And, and so the doctor behaves very irresponsibly, I think, at times. That's the second creates doctor a lot more. all over, though, isn't it? I yeah, mean, if well, you look ahead, and this is giving stuff away, sorry, but Tomb of the Cybertron. Oh, that's the one I was about to say. Yeah, because everything that happens in that story is directly because he allows it to happen and actually pushes it to happen. Every death in that story is essentially his fault except for the very first one. Yeah. Because if they hadn't been able to get in the doors because of the electrocuted guy, they would have just turned around and walked well, away. And that goes back to Jenny's point about the macro don't seem like a threat. Right. In a way, there there is... I guess the mining the gas is dangerous, so that's the only sort of threat there could be. But if they had all just been open up, they could have had some sort of work share program, some sort <laughs> of... Together, like, they could have. And, and that would seem to be much more in the ethos of Doctor Who. You mm-hmm. know, there's... That would be a new series take on it. It's like, figure out a way to make them work together. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, I mean, when you have lines, like, on this page, Jamie, it's when he's in the cave with the, the macro in their various states of being either gassed or not gassed. He spun round to see, in the corner of the passage, a second macro lurching laboriously towards him at the speed of a tortoise. He was being sandwiched. I'm like, oh no! Oh. So fearsome! This reminds me of in a fish called Wanda when the, yes. uh, what's-his-name with the steamroller is coming, and I'm like... <laughs> Yeah, it, it, they've said twice that these things move as a slug, even have lurching laboriously, which I mean, yes. A plus for alliteration, but I'm not afraid of a laborious tortoise. <laughs> yeah. Like, I I just, no. 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 I mean, the claws could be, like, oh, once they're there, watch out for the claws, but, but they, do they, haven't, no, they haven't done anything with it. No. At least on the cover of that book, they have, like, a gross, drooly mouth. Yeah. Like, why couldn't one of them have been drawn towards the mouth or drooled on? Maybe the drool is, like, acid, yes. acid drool. I don't know. Exactly. In fact, I can't remember. Does anyone actually die on this story? I People die from the gas, they like, explosions, the gas. but... But I think if, if they do, and if it was on screen, it would have been extras. Yeah. Because like there's yeah. a bit where they see someone who's succumbed or something, and That's they they it. kind of rescue them. But, no but is, no, none so of the named characters oh. die. I mean, I think it's not, it's not clear the 
haggard controller who's on the screen and you get right. the claw kind of around his neck. Yeah. It's not quite clear what happened to him. Eventually. That's a nice moment, actually. I mean, and, on screen, yeah, it's it looks one of the really few. terrifying. But it doesn't work all that well on the page again. And the only thing I could think of, and you probably were thinking of it too, was Time Lash. Yes. It's the same thing all over again. Yes. And of all the stories to compare this to, yes. <laughs> Time Lash will get there. Let's just say you haven't experienced pain until you've seen Time Lash. Okay. Because there's a line here where they're like, they dragged the unconscious man to his feet. And I'm like, how did you? He's unconscious. Like, you can't get a person to their feet if they're not conscious to stand on the feet. (laughs) You can drag them, but you can't drag them to their feet. No. Uh, These are the things, though, that, you know, it it just gets beaten to you. Also, at some point, apparently the crabs grew tentacles. And I was like, wait, so they have Mm -hmm. claws and tentacles? Mm -hmm. It's just sassier by the minute. Just a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah, it's not exactly the sort of thing that Quell's going to take care of. All all the sentences tend to be very, very short and simple. And and this is where it does remind me of like teaching a creative writing class in high school where the exclamation points. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I noticed that too. My colleague has a joke that says, like, you are allotted four exclamation points as a writer for your entire life, and you need to <laughs> use them wisely. Your entire life. That's really good. Oh but it, there, there were, and then some of them, and I, I, I wish I had them marked, but there were some, why is this exciting? I, I have one. It's from chapter three. He even came to a dead stop at one point. How and that's describing the doctor, you yeah. know, not moving fast enough. And it's like... And I had my note to myself is okay, th- that is not good writing. That was very poor writing, especially since it comes in the same chapter as the best line from this story, probably one of the best lines of the whole show. You have your fun while you can before these things start crawling all over you. I love that line, but it's also, you have to get through this story to get it. Or you have this wonderful line in chapter 11 mm-hmm. where... Who is talking? It's the pilot. He stopped in wonder and horror. What are they? Bacteria? <laughs> Insects? I'm like... Bacteria. Okay, Giant if this person bacteria. doesn't know what a bacterium, I guess would be, or does not know what bacteria is, then they deserve <laughs> yes. to be enslaved. Like, what really What do. the hell? I don't... And why this, would they throw that in there? And if yeah. this is supposed to be a children's book, or like a book to instruct kids, why would you want to teach them that <laughs> crabs are a bacteria? Our bacteria. Oh, bacteria that's very incorrect yes. like, insect, I mean. technically they're like a type of insect like a sea insect but they are yeah. not bacteria <laughs> and uh, it's such a shame because when he's good he's pretty good i mean you get the line on chapter nine confusion is best left to the experts and that's the second doctor line. That's marvelous. Or the bad laws are made to be broken, or something. Yes. That's a good. That's a good line. And there when too. they uh, get to a cupboard with a lot of pipes, and someone asks him what it is, and he says, "It looks like a cupboard with a lot of pipes," and that isn't emphasized nearly enough to make it the joke that it should be. But then you've got the. Mm-hmm. I mean, nothing in science fiction. Nothing dates like the idea of the future. Yeah. So, but even that they're solving equations on chalkboards, <laughs> that was... <laughs> oh, I know. Funny scene. Yes. If this had been John Peel, he might have had a line about, well, the colony's technology crapped out, so, or there was some sort of, you know, problem with the magnetic fields of the planet that prevented them from using computers, so they had to do this. That would have been fine. 
I would have accepted that. Or even that it was run by AMC, and IMC was too cheap to provide them computers, so they had to do billboards. That's fine. There's nothing like that here. It's just chalkboards. I want to say something nice about the book. Okay. Please. I think with this TARDIS crew, this is one the one story that makes good use of all four members of this TARDIS crew. Agreed. You know, uh, Underwater Menace, you know, Jamie's just and Ben are kind of interchangeable and get sign line. Jamie's out of commission, you know, in the moon base. So I think they, they did find something for all of the four of them to do with, like, Ben being resisting his brainwashing. Jamie dealing with the laborious macro. Polly <laughs> kind of helping the doctor and, you know kind of acting as a foil for them and the doctor being doctor. So I think all, all of them are used well in terms of finding screen time right. for them. And I think that's when you have these companion groups of three, it, that can be very difficult, which will be interesting to see how series 11 oh God, I know. deals with that. About that. It worries me because, and I think I said this last time, the fact that they gave Jodie Whittaker three companions right off the bat, is that a sign that they don't think she's quite strong enough to carry it? Or do are they trying a new dynamic? Either way, it worries me. Until I remember, First Doctor had three companions. Worked really well. So did Fifth. And so did the Fifth. That worked quite as well. Oh, I guess you mean Ian, <laughs> yeah. Barbara, and Susan? Yeah. yeah. And then Ian, Barbara, and we Vicky. love that. Which to me is like, yeah, like the old school crew. Oh my I'm god. Like, yeah, they're I've my been, favorite. Yeah, I've been watching the Twitch Marathon, and the Harlow stories went over like the bomb. Everyone mm. just adored that pairing. And when Barbara and Ian left, they were like, oh, yeah, I know. They were great. Why do we want Stephen Taylor even though he's the most beautiful man on earth? Yeah. Yeah. They were quite they were quite fabulous to get rid of them. I agree that Jamie and Ben came through pretty well. I don't know about Polly. All she really did was come and narrate every scene. Like, look out, Doctor. What's over there, Doctor? What are you doing, Doctor? We don't have time, Doctor. And give fabulous like, new haircut. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. They were like, oh, they got to have, I don't remember, like, they got to get with ladies and she's like, I'll take a shampoo. I'm like, don't you want to have, like, some fun? Maybe well, some cute and, dudes over there? I don't yeah. know. Ladies, whatever you want. Well, and that's the other thing. I mean, it's obviously a product of the 60s where yeah. we can imagine all this futuristic stuff, but all the women are still just the pretty cheerleaders and the mm-hmm. Assistance. There was not. I think there's like maybe one minor character who gets yes. a line, um, and I think her name's Chicky. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's the, and that's something the new series does so well because if this were the future, and even by the time you get to stories kind of like Happiness Patrol, which is very similar, oh, um, yeah. they kind of reverse it. Oh, God, yeah. But either, there's no reason why the controller or the pilot or Ola or some of those or Officia, you know. Mm-hmm. Take two of them, make them women, and yes. you yeah, would have had... Right. And come to think of it, wasn't this the story, and I usually do this research before figuring this out, but it's sticking out to me. Wasn't this the story where the actress playing the part got another role and wanted to be released from the contract, so they said, oh yeah, go ahead, and they recast it? Yeah, that might have been Chicky. <laughs> I think <it's> Chicky. <laughs> Yeah, so it was played by two different actresses. Yeah, because she's got one line in episode one, another yeah. line in episode four or something, and then... They let her go so that she could go off and do another part, and they have never done that before, or since. And that's how little, you know, women are actually uh, valued in this story, which is a shame, really. Although, really, I don't know, maybe this is terrible, but I'm like, I'd, I'd rather they be absent than be mistreated. Like, I could think of worse books that I've yeah. encountered I where I was like, oh, 
god. Um, there were I have a little annotation that I make a little like female sign next to everything that just sucked, <laughs> and there was only like two here, so mm. that's much better than it has been in the past. We have been quoting you like crazy, by the way, <laughs> about you know reading a, jo- a book, enjoying it so much, and then having your uterus stepped on. <laughs> And you were the one that originated that. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we can definitely see that. Um, interesting thing about this is the, the nice thing I wanted to say about it is that this is where we finally see Jamie working as a companion. Yeah. First time. Yes. And we yes. see some of that chemistry he's got with Troughton because they had it behind the scenes from the beginning, but you don't see it reflected in the scripts until this one. And then you're like, okay, finally. And it's it's interesting with Jamie because he, he's, it's weird because the character actually works better this way, mm-hmm. but he kind of stops being from 18th century Scotland. Yeah, and he becomes Fraser Hines. Yeah, in, in he a really way. does. And he's, you know, and and with the next two companion arrangements, those those two triple pairings, triple pairings that doesn't make sense, but <laughs> those those um, two setups that we have coming yeah. up are. They work a lot better, mm-hmm. and but he's the modern boy. Where he's the, the modern boy, kind of, and but what it'll be interesting. I mean, I'm just thinking about next time with faceless ones, where oh you've kind of got um, <laughs> the the companion who could have been, mm. and but she Pauline plays, she Collins. interplays well with Jamie very oh, well. Oh God, Pauline Collins! Even on audio, you're like, holy shit, that would have been a marvel. What's going to happen? I'm going to give this away, is that they introduce a character, a new character, Samantha, is that her name? Yeah, Samantha Briggs. Yeah, Samantha Briggs. And she is, I believe, a Scouse. She's, um, mm-hmm. And she's marvelous. And she's the one that's supposed to be the new companion because they're getting rid of Ben and Polly. But Pauline Collins says, oh, no, I don't really want to commit to a TV show. Thank you very much. Pauline Collins has since gone on to be one of the leading lights of British theater and television and film and ended up coming back to Doctor Who to play Queen Victoria in 2007. So she's amazing. And she went on to serious television, obviously, because she was in Upstairs, Downstairs. Mm. Just, you know, amazing actress. But she's a companion that could have been. Yeah, and just... I mean, we're getting ahead to the next podcast, but just the point about enough female characters. For its time, Faceless Ones has a, some really good assortment of um, female supporting characters. It really does, because Wanda Ventham. Wanda Ventham, Jean Rook. Yeah. And then the one that, because I don't know if I'll be on that podcast, I just want to say for then, I wish Nurse Pinto would have been oh, a companion. So. Yeah. I agree. I agree. But we're not there quite yet. Yeah. We're instead talking about... <laughs> oh you my god, we're still talking about the macro Oh no! Why? More terrifying than the macro Yes. <laughs> this is like talking about the Doctor Who equivalent of Man is the Hands of Fate, except it's not quite that bad either. Man is the Hands of Fate! Yes! I watched that. We Did were you? like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, yeah, we did. Um, yeah. Since we're going around saying like nice things about this, nice. I, I again, I enjoyed all the little rhymes. Um, I thought that those were the funny parts of it because they were a little bit like, what is that word I'm looking for? They, they seem self-awarely sarcastic. They're like, we know what a shit show this is, so we're gonna be like these funny little quips and how the doctor every time is like, no, that was terrible. <laughs> I, I like that. 
Uh, I also like this, just this little line about, what was it? Um, I think they're, they're gassing them again and there's the voice, go to sleep, go fast to sleep, happy, happy sleep time. And I, I thought that was nice. And then I just found this little line after it. There was something hypnotic about the voice. The doctor gave his cheeks a little slap. <laughs> I, I like that line now that I think about it. And his objection to Jamie calling him old at one point. Yeah, or when he gets into the, the rough and tumble machine to mess himself up again. <laughs> yes. I thought that was fun. I do wish that sequence still existed because I'd like to see how they pulled it off. Yeah, the Wizard of Oz uh, yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah. the whole thing is that, basically. Yeah. But not to the degree it needs to be. Not nearly to the degree it needs to be. What it's... did you like about this? Uh, not a whole lot. I think <laughs> we've kind of touched on the things that I did like. Um, I don't know. I just, it was underwhelming. It was just, there's not a whole lot for me to grasp onto. There's not a whole lot really going on. Like, even even the characters that we are introduced to are kind of just, like, fleeting, and they're there, and then they're gone, and then we see them, and then we don't, and then it's just like, <laughs> whatever. So are you saying, Dalton, that it was a quick read, but not a fun read? <laughs> it was not a fun read. No. It was a very quick read, though. I, um... It is a beach blanket read, though, isn't it? Because it's something that would fall asleep. Yeah, yeah. It's just. Well, I would be more afraid of a crab on the beach than these crabs. Like crabs are fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially that internet video, the one that has the knife and it's chasing the guy. Yeah. It's like like a shoot. Yes. Not only does it have its claws, it has a knife. Yes. That's a triple threat. (laughs) Yeah. There's this nothing. Yeah. Nothing scared me. You know, we don't even know what color they are, now that I think about it. No. I mean, we have a cover, but it never says that they're black or blue or gray or brown. Mm -hmm. They're just colors. Blue crabs (laughs) are... It's like, we eat those. Yeah. I wrote it somewhere. There's some beautiful crabs out there. Like, huge crab that sounds like dinner. We eat it. Tasty. Put it on my sushi. Could they... The red and good line. Good. They're kind of rusty, rusty red, yeah. That's it. The that's color it. of blood of the victims. Yes, exactly. Except they don't but they're a threat in Gridlock. They're not a threat. Not, oh, wait, sorry, you were saying they were? In Gridlock, they're a threat. They are a threat because they're basically enslaving this entire group of people in an ongoing traffic jam that has gone on for how long at that point? 15 years, something? Yeah, it has it. That story has its own problems because you're like, how? Oh. Uh, but that—that's oh, one of my favorite stories. But it is a, a wonderful story. It's a fantastic story, and the fact that it is the sequel to this one. And again, we're talking about another story. Another story. Of that's this a better one. story. Yeah. Exactly. I think the fact that we've deviated so many times from actually talking about this shows both how like frustrating and just uninteresting it was in yes. a lot of ways. Um, which again is too bad there were many ways that it could have been better but even when the chapter titles <laughs> chapter 12 four minutes to countdown i'm like you mean the countdown is four minutes it's four minutes to death you don't say you say like four minutes to blast off or four yeah. minutes to whatever four, like what how no like oh, okay they great. want you to know when the countdown is coming yeah like in, in count- four minutes we're gonna count you down to four minutes yeah uh it's a pre-countdown yeah. and of course i had the final countdown running through my head as soon as i saw that it's the
countdown, countdown. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, even that, it's well. like, okay, so ostensibly, if you have enough of this gas, you'll die. Like, we've seen people be unconscious of it, yeah. and they talk about people dying. Right. So, actually, the, that is pretty scary. Okay, they're in a room, there's a bunch of gas, they're gonna die. It's it's very uh, concentration camp-esque, mm-hmm. like, which, I don't know, to me, I feel like I was at a, some sort of tender level of my development in college when they were showing me all these Holocaust, like, things i was like seriously terrified by this stuff like holy shit i mean as one should be so this could rightly be terrifying but yet they just get out of it so easily yes they don't even say that i think they mentioned oh it was getting hard to breathe but it's not like oh they were falling down like their brain was foggy this was it they could have made that so much more tense and for that matter the conditioning is really easy to bring (laughs) it seems so yeah you just have to show them a crab and they're like oh that's a crab Oh my god, they exist. Yeah. So it's a good thing they don't have seafood night at this uh, column. It's calling me. How does that conditioning happen anyway? Is it the macro? Is it some sort of human quizzling who got it started? That would have been even interesting, but it wasn't. Mm. Yeah. Too many questions, not enough answers. There there was a spinoff book. I, I thought I had that. Doctor Who, Decide Your Destiny. It's an 11th Doctor story, The Claws of the Macra by Trevor Baxendale. Really? Did Trevor Baxendale do this? Yeah. Seriously? When he, and he's a horror writer, but uh-huh. again, it's like for kids, though. It's like a fine Decide Your Destiny. So That sounds awesome. Claws. So I'm, I'm, choose your own adventure books. The Doctor Who ones are pretty good. Strange one. Though. We should do one of those for a Christmas special or something. Yes. Mm-hmm. Awaits danger and adventure await you on a school trip to a gas refinery infested <laughs> by giant crustaceans. Oh, oh my god. Oh, okay. So I yeah, I'm having to look this up on the TARDIS wiki. <laughs> Publisher summary: Join the Doctor on his travels through time and space. Danger and await an adventure await you on a school trip to a gas refinery infested by giant alien crustacean. <laughs> Only you can help the doctor and Amy put a stop to the macros plans and save Earth. Plot to be added. You know, it's, this is a pretty minor one, but oh, but it's the doctor and Amy, so it's the eleventh doctor. Yeah. Oh my god, this is recent. That's probably why it's I don't 2010, know. Twenty ten. Yeah, it's 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 a decide your destiny. We've got to do that. We, yeah, we podcast. should really do that. It's for Christmas. I feel like, do, do you have an association with the verb infested as something small? Like, you wouldn't usually yeah. say the zoo is infested by elephants. Whenever, like, right. Yes. Right. Whenever I think of crabs, I think of infestation, but then, you know. But those are like tiny enough. crabs, not like you tiny could have. Tiny and lots of them. Yeah. Giant, and, and we see like five. Infestation yeah. of cockroaches or mice, but you're just like, oh, hey, there are some and big the crabs. Story, there's only one. I mean, there are on, on the page, yeah, there right. like, they only had one in the studio. Two, I guess, we've seen in the cave, moving as fast as tor- tortoises. Yes. Um, yeah. But, yeah, we... Yeah, at some point I just had all caps. And it's it's not clear what they were going to do with the people. Like, the one grabbed Jamie, the one grabbed Polly. What were they going to do with yeah. them? Yeah. So dance. It's, we're going to dance together. As collective, the crab dance. As collective nouns go, it's less an infestation, more an annoyance of crabs. Yeah. Yeah. More just a, a group of them, like a party of crabs, a crab party. A clutch of cl- crabs. A clutch of crabs. A of crabs. Yeah. Oh, just, my God. Well, that's where we've come to. I mean, thank God it was short. That's all I can I mean, yes. Thank God. It was indeed. I was exhausted, and I was like, okay, thank God. This I is just... just 
not that I would trust Ian Stewart Black, because he did a better job with it in War Machines. That's what's so weird. And if he could have fleshed out the story, I think I think there I think there's a good story in here somewhere. Yeah. And but it was more, and maybe it's because you know with War Machines he had the visuals to go back to, and this one it was missing. It was just kind of he just probably would have been had the original scripts and had to novelize it based on that. Sad. But it's well, he even did a better job in the Savages. Yeah. And The Savages is also basically this story. Which is interesting, mm-hmm. though, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's also The War Machines. This, yeah. There are some themes here because it's a reversal. In War Machines, it's Polly who's mind-controlled, yes. and Ben's trying to break through to her. Right. And in this one, Ben's the one who's mind-controlled. And then you've got The Savages, which is kind of like the utopia that isn't, that has a dark right. secret. So this is kind of like a greatest hits in it. It just doesn't work. <laughs> it's as like he's well. trying to mix those two previous stories, and they don't. And then add crabs. Yeah, you know, add crabs. You know, season it with some old bay, and that's just. Yeah. <laughs> now that's what I call who crabs. Yeah. Um, I I often too wonder sometimes, like what um, I don't know, external forces are affecting the composing of these novels. Like, do they care that much? Do they just need it for the money? You mentioned that uh, this. Uh, Black's kids just wanted him to like hmm. do this or something. Like maybe they really don't put that much effort. I, I, I didn't address this. It's 1987, which means that the target range is running out of original scripts to do for the books. But they at the same time are selling like hotcakes because you've got the American market suddenly opening up. So they need books. So they're going. The editors are going back to these old authors and saying, please, please, please novelize this for us. And and that's basically it. They're scraping the bottom of the barrel. They, they, would, they would give them first refusal because what happened, there was a writer from the fourth Doctor era, David Fisher, and they just gave two of his stories to Terrence Dix, who writes a lot of these. And then David Fisher raised a fuss and he got first refusal. And they, that's kind of what started making sure the original authors got first refusal on doing this. And then what's weird is David Fisher got, went back and novelized those two as audio only books. But, so, I mean, you were talking about the species exam, and it's not, it's not, it's, it's plotting. The tragedy of it is you do get a sense that Glenn Jones was really invested in it. Yeah, we noted that and time. Whereas in this one, you know, you don't feel that Ian Stewart Black's invested in it no. at all. There's just certain things on here that I'm like, you really didn't care. Like, no. you didn't care about This was just for the money. But like the arc, Paul Erickson really expanded the arc yeah, really in, in a way that showed that he was invested in this old script from 20 years ago. But Peter Lee will do the same thing with the Mind Robber. I mean, it's, it's interesting that a lot of the books in this era, so it really depends on the individual script writers. Some of them you can see that they're just funding it, maybe just taking the paycheck. Some of them were like, you know what? They're not even going to bother with it. And some of them really tried to do the best they could and, um, and expand the story. So it's, it's really just based on the individual author, I think. Exactly. And I kind of wish that he actually had refused it and given it over to, say, Nigel Robinson. Nigel Robinson would have done good things. Nigel Robinson would have done wonderful things with this book. We love Nigel Robinson. Your face is so mad. You're like pouting. I am. Nigel Robinson. I really really wanted this to be better. Oh well. Oh well. Yes. Uh So shall we? Shall we go to Goodreads and see what they have to say? I am really curious. It's interesting because you would think that, given the way we've been slagging this book, that the score would be lower than it is. 
But as we do, always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, simply read the book, write a review on Goodreads, and then write a comment somewhere to let us know so that we can see it before discussing the book ourselves. We may just have your review read out loud here, which we've done in the past, but not for this one. The average rating for this story out of five stars is 338 that's, that's, that's even worse than usual. Okay. Well, it's also surprisingly higher than uh, For a book this bad, that's, yeah. Yeah. So here's some sample reviews. Tom Mills gives it four stars. Tom! Tom! Tom. What Tom. are you reading? Ruining the curve. I know. This is what this is what he says about it. And he's not a, absolutely wrong, but the Macra Terror has obvious Orwellian parallels. And Ian Stewart's black scripts address themes of propaganda and conformity at a time when the electorates of the West were increasingly disillusioned with government and the establishment. Yeah, I guess in 1987 this might have had a little more resonance. I think it would in 2018. You'd think it would, but it doesn't. In the wake of political scandals and assassinations, people were questioning their obedience to to authority in the 1960s. The age of deference was over. This idea is best illustrated by the doctor's comment to Polly, you've been given orders while you've been asleep. Don't just be obedient. Always make up your own mind. That's, I'm sorry, I can't do Trout very well. Echoes of 1984, The Venturing Candidate, and A Clockwork Orange. Similarly, the story's funniest scene has the doctor rebelling against his ordered regime. When his unkempt appearance is questioned, the doctor's clothes and hair are styled by a grooming machine. In dismay, the doctor uses a toning device to get messed up again. But who wants to see their face in a pair of suede shoes? True, the story is let down by the macro themselves. Gee, you think? But this can be overlooked because their scenes are kept to a minimum. Of course, the damn thing was ten feet tall and had to be on the back of a van. And the suspense is only heightened in the audio version, which I didn't listen to. I'm going to have to. Does so, Annika do a good version of Yeah, I mean, Annika always has fun with her um, narrations. I and, adore her readings of books. Yeah, she, she, well, the thing is, she loves, I mean, she still loves it. She gets so excited about these old stories. Um, yeah. And because I, I had the opportunity to be her minder at Chicago TARDIS two years ago. Oh, you and, lucky bastard, you. And she is just genuinely into these stories. Really? She, she is all heart about them. She loves them um, truly. I'm trying to get and her to record a bumper for us. I tried to reach out through Twitter. I was like, Ms. Wills, can you please record a bumper for us? You only have to do it on your phone. Because <laughs> I would love her to do that. She's just amazing. Adam James gives it three stars. And says, after obtaining every single episode of Doctor Who in its 50-year run, the internet is amazing. I found a new obsessive pleasure. Reading the novelizations along to the audio of junked episodes. Which strikes me as very hard to do. Using the Macro Terror as the first foray into new nerd territory. Boy, boy howdy, you're, you're not kidding. I was pretty impressed with how well this technique works. Really? Listening to poorly recorded dialogue and trying to decipher what's actually happening, or which of Patrick Troughton's two faces he's using. How dare you, sir? How dare you? Two faces? Fuck you. All while staring at... Sorry, Adam, I, I don't mean that. But still, two faces? All while staring at still images sounds pretty enthralling, but shockingly, it's pretty mind-numbing. Yes, Reading a description of Patrick Troughton's smug, wry smile as his dialogue is heard, mind-blowing. Well, mind-satisfying. 
That was a weird review. And finally, Jennifer, not ours, gives it only two stars, as probably Jenny might do, saying, I was keen on the idea of an earlier macro story because she's obviously seen um, uh, Gridlock, but my fellow listener and I would both have preferred them to be more uh, unequivocally crustacean rather than have the frequent references to insects. The second Doctor starts to show better here, but Jamie still seems too far unbewildered to be out of his century, and Polly seems terribly wet. Not in a good way. Yeah, that's that's a Britishism. It's not the same thing. I see, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's not wet in that way. Like a wet blanket? Or yeah. Like, okay, yeah. okay. Not a bad tale in itself, and the motivational jingles and brainwash happiness and compliance of the colony residents set the teeth suitably on edge. Well, only if you're hearing them. They don't do that on the page. So, let's ask for the panelists' opinions. Um, Trey, you are our guest, so we're going to let you go first. Out of five stars, what do you give this? Well, you know, as I've mentioned before when I've done this, I think, how do we rate a novelization? And its purpose is to provide an accurate picture of the TV series. And so, um, I'm going to have to go with... I'm, I'm vacillating between one or two stars. Oh. And um, I'm going to have to say... I'm probably going to give it a one star because I think um, it does adapt it, but it doesn't adapt it in a way that's good. Even when Terrence Dix is being in his most efficient adaptation, he's so good with just prose that it doesn't really come across as poor writing. And so even if it's just a script to prose translation, at least other authors have done that bare minimum in a much more effective way. And, and, um, Ian Stewart Black failing to improve the story or to revisit it, it just feels like a real lost opportunity. So it doesn't, the story itself has problems. Um, the novelization could have maybe fixed some of those problems. It it just aimed very low as far as what it was going to do. So I think this is one of the most disappointing of the novelizations. I would agree. In fact, he seems to compound the problems to some degree. Yeah. And speaking of dicks for Gay Pride Month, we're getting dicks next time because he novelized uh faceless ones so yeah jenny you are our hostess tonight so you get to go next tell us what did you think out of five stars what would you give this tell us, tell us i'm more. glad trey that you went as low as one because in my head i was thinking like 1.5 is that too mean but if really <laughs> nope. yeah it, i'm and it's hard i i wish i kept a better record i have these notes but i wish i kept a better record of how i felt about all the things that we read but mm-hmm. i don't know this may have been the most disappointing one, um, just in terms of poor writing, like lazy writing. That's that's the thing. It's, you're right. It's another thing when I when you see that someone is trying to commit things to it, but you know for whatever reason they can't execute it as well as it could have been. But this, I'm like, Black, you just didn't give a shit. Like you, well, you yeah. sent it in, you got your paycheck, and you went and did whatever. And it reminds me, you know, when you said funded in and how lazy it. One of the assignments that I sometimes give when I'm teaching the creative writing class for high school students who don't have careers in writing yeah. is just to get them used to like punctuating dialogue and paragraphing all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I have them find a scene from a film or like a viral video on the internet and just novelize it. Nice. And, you know, just a scene and just, and it's mainly that it's mainly designed to have them punctuate the dialogue correctly and paragraph and keep mm-hmm. things in the, so they're not even having to come up with a story, just, you know, what mm. happened and put it on there. Mm-hmm. And I've seen better pros from high school students. Wow. Yeah. And that's, 
and this looks like one if i were grading it i'd i would have all sorts of notes oh, and marking yeah. and so yes. <clears throat> it, that's and i being writing instructors and i too i i've never taught creative writing and i at least really a course about it but i've certainly been in a lot of creative writing classrooms and this would be ripped apart i mean it's just the the level to which the conceit doesn't work of the crabs is kind of unforgivable like i it's as if no one else ever read this <laughs> like because someone had to have been like ian the crabs aren't scary and that's the whole point they need to be fearsome and it's they're not terror yeah and they are the opposite of terror no, they're just dinner i don't know yeah like the macro so right exactly so that like the the fact that the, the reason for this book to exist doesn't work like yes. that coupled with the again uh, drunken panda prose uh <laughs> is just really really sad and i i think maybe why i would give it the 1.5 is that at least we get some good moments from jamie even though it's true he has no excuse to act so acclimated to like whatever's going on i just i buy that because it's like he Every other moment, he would be like, wait, what's this? Wait, what's this? It would be impossible to convey it realistically. So I guess the complete absence of that is a little problematic. But I sort of just, you know, given the fact that there are just giant slow crabs that are yet unseen and that everyone is terrified of them, like, if we accept that, I accept that Jamie can cannot question all of this too hard. So 1.5. Merry Christmas, 1.5. Merry Christmas, 1.5. Yeah, one, that's what I was thinking, too. I was in here, one or two. Hmm. Wow. Let's go down the middle. I am unimpressed. I am bored. I This was, like, <laughs> why? Your notes are usually twice this long for books that were just as bad. That's true. This is six pages of notes from Tony Witt. So, like... <laughs> This there was nothing here. Um, yeah, it's like I feel like he's judging like my notes. like tree. It's not a judgment on your notes. No, if you don't have enough to say about the book, it, that yeah. is true. Like like Trey said, like you've seen better out of high school students, and I feel like yeah, it was just phoned in. It was boring. It totally felt like just something to get a paycheck, to get it done and knocked out. And that would be great. It. <laughs> Yeah. It could have been so much more. We sitting here tonight have thought of ways to have improved upon what could have been. True. But it's, yeah, flat and boring and unmemorable and whatever. Wow, you were channeling Allison there for a second. Oh, could you imagine Allison? Oh my god, Allison would tear this apart. Wow. And that's the thing, like, I usually am lenient and I usually will find something to enjoy, something to like, some redeeming quality there. And it's just, it's not. It's like the shrug emoji. It's, (laughs) it is. It is. It It is is what it is, as our kids tend to say. I, yeah, I would have to agree that. Looking back at this, I was expecting so much more, and I got so much less, and the fact that it took such a short time to read it was not necessarily because it was officially written, it's because there's nothing there to inspire thought. And not because it was something you wanted to get through. Right, exactly. It's not like Planet of Giant Dicks, where we got through that because we were like, oh my god, this, uh, ah, why is this happening to us? Why doesn't... Why can't this be faster? And yeah, whereas this is just like, no, no, no. Yeah. I have spent the last week grading AP lit exams. Shout out to ETS, represent, woohoo. And this 
if this had come across as an essay, <laughs> I would have been like, no, zero. No, you're not getting credit for this class. In fact, you need all the help that you can get. Yeah, but I'm not going to give it that low score. I am going to give it probably the lowest score that I've ever given a book on this podcast. That's going to be a one. I am surprised at myself because you have convinced me there is nothing really useful or good about this book. Especially since I'm listening to Twice Upon a Time by Paul Cornell in the car and it is bringing me to tears. Which I cannot remember a Target book doing ever. This one, I can't imagine it bringing me to joy. It's just not going to do it. In fact, it makes me think of, you know, you know, having to stock up on quell. I wanted some crab. I was like, can I have this? Or crab legs. Crab yeah, legs. it's like crab legs. Let's yeah. have a big crab broil. <laughs> let's do that. Or let's watch Gridlock because that's even more enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, so one star out of five. Thank you, guys. You're <laughs> suffering through this with us and thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time next time we get Dix Terrence Dix that is and his novelization of the faceless ones in which we say goodbye to Polly and Ben oh, well. does Jamie stay? yeah oh, that's oh god nice. Jamie will be here until Trouton leaves oh okay there's only in fact one Trouton story that doesn't have Jamie in that's cool. It's kind of amazing, really. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, then it's hard to imagine. Like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. You can visit our nearly pristine subreddit at www.reddit.com forward slash r forward slash wdwtargetbc. Also, feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes and give us a thumbs up at YouTube forward slash user forward slash emperordalek forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter. We're at dwtargetbc or subscribe to us via the podcast of your choice. We are everywhere. Just Google us. It's amazing how rare we are, but we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn. If all else fails, you email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
have fun while you can before they crawl all over you. That's enough. <laughs>